Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with one of my fellow co-founders of BE Works, Nina Mazar. Nina is a professor of marketing at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. And she's also the co-director of the Susilo Institute for Ethics in the Global Economy. She's one of the world's leading behavioral scientists and has published in top academic journals on a range of topics, including dishonesty, green behavior, tax compliance, organ donation, to name just a few. In our conversation, Nina and I dig into how behavioral science can and should be used in the context of COVID-19. We also explore the role of behavioral science research in addressing specific COVID-19 challenges, such as productivity and well-being, the ethics of nudges and collecting data, and the importance of data on work from home and return to work initiatives. Could you tell us what aspects of your research can be used to help government solve COVID-19 related challenges? I know that's a pretty open-ended question, but I certainly know it's something that you've been thinking about um, probably since uh, the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, so I, I think we as behavioral researchers, there, there are really a lot of opportunities for us to help things through. Um, and so, for example, on, on, on my side, I've been, I have been thinking with some colleagues of mine at Boston University about how to get a better sense of what the effect of the pandemic has been on people's productivity. So I'm, 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 I'm not an organizational behavior person by training, as you know, and I have a behavioral, um, an organizational behavior colleague who is working with this on me. And we are, we are just about to, to launch now a survey to get a sense what was the productivity before versus during um, and asking for pr- productivity from various different angles. So not just the hours that I'm putting in, but do I actually feel that I'm accomplishing the amount of work that, that I'm given? Has the amount of work that I've been given, has it increased, has it decreased, has it stayed the same? What is What has been the expectation on my employer's side? And as a consequence, also probably my anxiety level. And then also questions such as, well, are you working mostly from home these days? Has that changed, right? And do you have a dedicated space where you can work? Do you have people around you? Do you have children? Um, do you no longer have childcare? And 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 we would like to get a bit more fine grade grain information also based on what type of job people have, in which industry, as well as as it's part time, full time, self employed. Um, and this is not so much about interventions, as you can tell. It's really first of, to get a sense of, well, how have people been impacted and how do they feel about it? And it's not just this object, this objective sense of what has happened to my productivity, or more objective sense, I would say, but also really how is my well-being doing? Because I, I, I think one of the big things that we, we hear pop up more and more, especially also in the medical profession, is that this pandemic may really increase people um, or decrease people's well-being, right? We are much more isolated. A lot of people who maybe live by themselves are single, so they may in theory uh, be in productivity heaven because they're at home, they can just focus at work. But at the same time, we forget that we are social animals it's important that we have our social ties. And if we are now separated from all of these, what does this do to, to our well-being? And, and what does this do to be able to, to, to keep on doing the work at, at the quality that, that uh, we are expecting? So I think what we would like to, to, to see is how really everybody across the board has been affected and potentially in different ways 
But still, I do think that we will find that almost everybody has been affected. And I think it's important to get a sense of that because then it's also, we are in a much better position to judge the effects of the pandemic, not just the immediate ones, but also the longer term ones. And we also have a few explorative open questions in that survey where we are hoping to get a sense of, well, what has helped people to do their jobs well? What has helped people to basically stay sane <laughs> or feel good to, to get some insights that we can then maybe use to, to think about potential interventions or recommendations. So it's not the typical field experiments RCT, right, that, that, that we are running, but, but I think if you combine insights from organizational behavior, from marketing, from judgment, decision-making, behavioral economics, psychology, I think this is when you really get a very rich view on, on everything and uh, th that's what we are doing. Or for example, I'm exploring right now with some um, computational social scientists, this idea that um, to what extent are, are, are um, the social connections or the social ties that we have in social media, to what extent are they important in helping us to behave in the same or different way across potentially county borders or state borders that have very different policies when it comes to how they're tackling the pandemic? Um, so there we are looking into um, tracing mobility data and, and, and linking that potentially to, to some um, social media action, but definitely also to what is the current status of each of the counties or states? Are they still open? Are they still, are they still transitioning? How, how extreme have the measures been? When, and, and, and the recommendations in terms to stay at home, wear masks, how extreme has the closing been of daycare and other non-essential businesses? So I think, again, if we as behavioral scientists work with, with other disciplines, I think you, you, you can actually really accomplish quite a bit. And, and this is obviously on top of the, the thinking about, okay, well, what insights have we already accumul accumulated in behavioral sciences that could be Im immediately helpful in thinking about what are some useful recommendations that we can give to policy, whether it's hand washing, um, things such as uh, um, like what do you know from, from the research of Wendy Wood in terms of how do you break habits? How do you help creating new habits, fresh start, right? There is a lot of research on there and, 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 and taking that accumulated evidence and think out, okay, well, what are best practices? What do, what do we know is low risk that, 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 and, and, and low cost and could make a difference? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, it's definitely a great time for behavioral science in terms of, like you said, um, you know, take the insights that are um, immediately useful because they might be questions that have already been asked and answered and explored and tested in different parts of the world. Like you said, you know, hand washing is a subject that behavioral science has been playing with for years. Um, in you know, at risk economies and in other places where um, understanding the science of hygiene has been newer um, or the infrastructure wasn't there in the past, but then the infrastructure was brought in. And so then those new habits and routines needed to be brought into those markets. So now we have, um, you know, to redeploy that research in, you know, around the world. And so that's that, um, you know, it's right there on the shelf and, and ready to go um, to help. One of the things that stood out to me, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, just one more thing that, that I was also thinking about is, I think this is also the time where we can really be creative based on the existing knowledge. So, for example, if we know that social ties are so important for us humans. I think one, one of the places where behavioral economists or behavioral scientists could be really making a difference is to think about, well, how can we recreate those now when everybody is on Zoom, now when everybody is social distancing? Like, like, like how do you recreate the typical water cooler chit chat and, and many of these other things? Like, should we think of 
perhaps recommendations where we schedule meetings with our friends where we are on Zoom and we will watch together something or we will do yoga via YouTube together or like what are those things for the workplace as well as for your private place and and, and learning to schedule those and, and actively seek those out. Yeah. That's right. And I think, you know, our, our piece on, you know, no, no more conversations at the water cooler that we put in Business Insider was one of the places where we started to address that and are building on for our work from home survey that now we're pivoting to return to work, which has been weird for all of us. Um, but exciting, and I'm looking forward to um, the results that we get from those initial initial surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I wanted to follow up with you on was um, you talk about how behavioral science. We, like you said, you 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 know, you're really emphasizing this opportunity to redeploy, redeploy these insights, or redeploy insights to help tackle questions that we hadn't really made that connection on. I wanted, I wanted to transition to um, a question that I find, um, an issue that I find um, profoundly disappointing and frightening. And um, I, I very much look forward to hearing your point of view on this issue. So the behavioral science interventions that you've talked about, things like hand washing um, and the role of like fresh start effect, these are very amenable to people who recognize the inherent dangers of COVID-19, either to themselves or to other members of the community. Mm-hmm. But what about people who don't see the risk? And in particular, um, what is your point of view on scientific thinking and how it's being regarded in an era right now where the perception of science is is not held as um, um, maybe people think that they're uh, looking at things scientifically, but there's merely just conspiracies that are highlighting some science more than other science. So what what impact do you think that the pandemic is having on the public perception of science? How has it helped or how is it hurt and how can behavioral science, you know, tackle that when we know it's great to help strengthen those who believe that COVID-19 is a risk and, oh, great, I just need to have my habits sharpened or, or, you know, improved. But what about those who don't think that COVID-19 and the pandemic are, are real or it's not a legitimate threat? Boy, that's, <laughs> you're asking a very, very tough question. Okay. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I, if, if, if I have any, any good answer. I mean, if, 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 if I had an answer to that, I, th- I think I could, I could make a big difference <laughs> in this world. But what I, but what I find promising is research that is out there that, that is showing like, for example, and, 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 and I will pro- probably not do a good job recalling it entirely since it's not my research, but David Rand at MIT Sloan is working a lot on misinformation. And oftentimes this whole issue about misinformation and where you're getting your news from and when it comes to social media and different platforms, you you usually see quite a divide based on political lines and and also how much you really believe in science and whatnot, right? And, and, And I, I recently came across of one of his papers that has been looking at very, very simple in, in, in intervention, which was basically just, just making it salient for individuals to think about whether what they have just read is accurate. So just prompting basically accuracy in people's minds made it so that people were dramatically better at identifying whether a piece of information that was from social media was actually fake or not fake. And and my impression was that this was across the board, so across also that type of divide that you are mentioning. I may be wrong, but but, but that's at least what I'm recalling. 
And so there is work out there that seems promising that even small interventions can help. Um, but otherwise, uh, tough question, tough questions, how you deal with that, especially when the country is divided and we live in a democracy, right, where it's not the dictatorial, where you can just force everybody to, to behave in a certain way. That's right. Yeah, and it's um, it doesn't help that a small rally gets showcased by mainstream media, thereby perpetuating this perception that there's a much larger contingent supporting it. Love to have your thoughts on on that and making maybe helping kind of unpack that a little bit. Mm. Well, if I, I just had one more thought, and again, it's it's not my research area, so I'm I I I'm, I, I may do a terrible job um, trying to e explain it, but I seem to remember that there was, for example, also research in the U.S. across the political divide, showing that, um, and, and and I think these were messages about well, how do you get people to behave more environmentally friendly? and showing that if you change the focus of the appeal, so instead of talking about what the impact will be to society or for the environment, you change it more from a, from a, to, to more of a self-interest appeal, like, like what are you getting out of this or what are your children getting out of this, um, that, that, that then you can also increase the support that you're getting. So I think if this is where research from marketing, research from psychology can be really insightful to, to try and overcome any divide that, need, that we may have. So um, just throwing statistics or um, things at, 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 at people that, that I meant at educating them. I mean, we know that, for, for example, from the, the literature on, on financial decision-making, that oftentimes educational interventions are, are not that successful, right? And there are, there are other ways. So we have to find out what makes people tick, what gets them motivated to pay attention and to act. And there is heterogeneity in, in, in the population. And if we are segmenting them, and finding out for each of those segments what makes them tick, you can you, you can try to appeal to that right with 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 behavioral interventions. Yeah, yeah, and I think that some of the things that are emerging, um, one of them in particular is this um, issue around the perception of freedom, mm. and. I, I find that word and that concept, um, it's, it's a fascinating and powerful and beautiful concept. And in some ways it gets at the heart of maybe some of the challenges between behavioral economics and libertarians or other advocates of, of small government. And so some of this seems to potentially be people genuinely um, thinking that the price that's being paid for the risk being mitigated is too high, the price in terms of the imposition of freedom. But then if we look at the history of behavioral economics, I mean, Richard Thaler is far from a, a left, left winger as, as you get. And when he and Cass Sunstein were doing their, their earliest, earliest work, and responding to sin taxes, um, you know, which evolved into libertarian paternalism, um, evolving into uh, the role of behavioral economics and helping people um, achieve their best outcomes, their 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 self-interested um, outcomes. It it makes this um, tension between government intervention to protect individuals and to protect society versus um, freedom, a, a very, very complicated, um, uh, it's not even a, a, a battle. Um, what are your thoughts on, on freedom and behavioral economics and this being one of the things that's driving people to fight and resist um, public 
health interventions? Well, again, you're asking very tough questions here, almost bordering on philosophical <laughs> and obviously also political views and convictions here. Um, I mean, th this is one of the reasons why I'm not a politician. You have to make tough trade-offs. I mean, um, when it comes to behavioral interventions, for example, I, I mean, I, I, I can see that some people feel, for example, that it's even unethical sometimes because they feel it, that, that, this, that some of those interventions are, are made to trick people, to, right, to push them to doing something that they, that they, that they otherwise wouldn't do. And that, that is actually an easier point to address because then we can say, well, we are not pushing to people to, to, to behave in ways that they are not interested in. I mean, that is not working. For that, a nudge is far too, far too light Right, so it's it's about we are changing people's behavior who would like to behave in a certain way, but then life gets in the way and they don't behave according to that. So I want to go to the gym, but then you know I procrastinate and and I don't end up doing it. I would like to save for retirement, but everything is far too complex, and then I am just paralyzed. Right? I mean, this is oftentimes where we make a difference. So it's not it's it's not about forcing people to do something that they don't want to do. But you're going beyond that, and and you're asking, well, isn't isn't that still in some ways, manipulating people. And I mean, Cass Sunstein has wrote so much about that, right? Where, he, where he's making the point, like no matter which policy we have, or no matter how you, like whenever you set something up, like if I, if I want to ask people at the DMV the questions, whether they want to sign up as organ donors, I have to, I have to decide how am I going, how is that going to work? Right? Are people asked when they come in at the reception? Are they asked at when they're doing their transactions? Um, how am I designing the survey? I mean, oftentimes it has been outsourced to just some designers potentially without really thinking more about it. But, but no matter what that design is, it has an effect on people's decisions. So all that we are doing is hey, we are understanding what kind of an effect this and this design will have. If you are introducing this 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 new in, um, if 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 you want people to sign up as organ donors, you're doing this potentially, I guess, because you want to increase organ donations, right? So why don't then design it in a way such that you get the best outcome that we can think of, right? So um, I guess what I'm saying here, I'm. At the end of the day, I think Cass Sunstein has done a much better job than I can do to explain and de de defend that point of view. Um, I, I, I think that there are probably more important issues that we need to think about when it comes to how we are applying behavioral economics in the real world and also when it comes to um, how to fight, for example, the current pandemic trade-offs such as, well, if you want to fight the pandemic, uh, we need much more tests. We need to be, it, it would help if we can trace the infections, if we can trace people's mobility. Yet the trade-off here, and rightly so, because it is about health data, this is extremely sensitive. Privacy is a big issue. How do you trade off these? How should we think of that? How can we design systems so that privacy is not compromised in the right way? How can we design standards? And if we as behavioral econ economists can help in, 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 in this discussion and help um, to, to, with a better design, I think this is where we, where we should be helping because these are the really, really serious trade-offs. Yeah, I think if I, I could tie together a couple of the points that you've made around um, people having a, uh, you know, a different point of view or they're vulnerable to the, you know, false news and, and um, you know, you know, asking them if it's accurate. 
And then the second point you had was around if we make things a self-interested appeal, that um, we're all on the same page potentially around testing. There's potentially a, a breakdown again around tracing, but at least we can all be aligned on, on testing, um, regardless of what your perception is around um, the level of interventions that government should take. This is these are you know, the role that public um, behavioral science can take in helping understand where these differences are in terms of people's receptivity to public health interventions, and then refine um, a, an understanding about where there might be resistance to a public health intervention, where there will be strong buy-in. And then in terms of where that's resistance, it's like digging deeper and saying, if we can, if we can find that common ground, then collectively we'll be able to move forward. And so understanding the complexities of those motivations and perceptions and beliefs, I think is one of the areas that hasn't necessarily been um, applied as much as it should be um, from the behavioral science community and into the hearts and minds of, of, our, of our public health leaders. They've certainly seem to have embraced uh, you know, the communications aspects, like you said, of changing habits, and there's been some really nice progress around, you know, uh, changing education from much more statistical and heavy, heavy, heavy information to things that um, leverage people's, you know, general cognitive disposition for information that's fast, easy to process, um, communicated through visuals, and, and that's been a great breakthrough in that combination of behavioral science and marketing, as you referenced earlier. But I think we certainly need to continue to, to dig deeper um, and, uh, and leverage other work. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. I mean, much of our, of our work in behavioral economics, especially in the early days, has been just looking at changing or moving the average needle and I think in combination with big data and fine-grained data, we should be able to, to really do this for certain segments or really take care of or address some of the heterogeneity that, that is out there. And, 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 and I think we, we are seeing this more and more in, in experiments that are applying behavioral insights. Yeah, uh, that's great. Um, so another question for you is, I think has two parts. One is just getting your perspective on the definition. Um, no more tough questions, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you know how I, I, I love to talk philosophical and political and scientific with you. <laughs> um, so, the, so the next one is just around um, natural experiments. And, uh, you know, have you seen any natural experiments um, playing out or things that you're you're curious about as we go through the pandemic. But first, I, I need you to um, provide a definition um, just to make sure that the folks who are listening to us understand what we mean when we say a natural experiment. So what is just just to just to get the technical part of the question out of out of the way. And then I'd love to hear your point of view on what you where you think a natural experiment or experiments may be occurring. Um, if you don't mind, let me actually turn that question around. How do you find natural experiment? Um, so I, I think that when we use like John List's definition in terms of there being like a, a way to have a very clear um, and fairly objective way to capture, you know, the world was like this, an event happened, and the world was like that. And we could make a reasonable inference of this, of this causal, uh, a causal mechanism. Yeah, yeah. So I would, I would have that that same, that, that same definition. Some major change, and 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 we see a difference in in behavior, and then I'm trying to understand well, what is it that is part of that change that has really led to to these differences. Um, Well, there were a couple that you talked about already. I know with the COVID um, and based on 
how your the strengths of your social ties are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking of if I if I can think of 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 any other if I can think of any other that is very apparent to me. I mean, it seems like there's so many now with the COVID crisis, right? It's like also going back to the productivity and 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 seeing and and also learning how easy is it really for people to get used to working online. Um, there, there may have been many jobs where we thought, no, this is not really possible, or we thought that the people would need much, much longer to get up to speed. So we will learn quite a bit about how, how, how agile certain jobs are, how, how agile certain industries are. Um, those kind of things come immediately to mind, but since I'd already kind of alluded to that earlier, I was, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can't think can of we, any. Yeah, can we talk about that one? Um, so, yeah, I think that your point there is very interesting, and in, in some of the client projects that we have, mm -hmm. it's, it's so funny. We've actually been, um, there's one, um, major financial institution that we've been working with on this question uh, long prior to the pandemic, which was around, um, should we allow our financial advisors to work from home on Fridays? Mm -hmm. And that was the question. That was, you know, and it, it seems so innocent now. And you know, the questions were things like, you know, how do we ensure that people are productive? How do we make sure that this isn't, um, you know, that 20% reduction of office time leads to downstream reduction of collaboration opportunities because Fridays do have a tendency to be a bit social at the office. And that's when the financial advisors generally have a chance to kind of touch base quickly and then they actually start to talk about clients apparently and do some brainstorming on did you read this news item and so then there was concern you know about something that you had talked about earlier which is these social connections but in fact you know it turns out it's a very very valuable time for this information exchange between these guys but nobody would really have ever seen that in a you know how productive was your week And uh, those were the kinds of questions that we were trying to explore and find out what's the implication of, and like you said, are there other ways to build a virtual water cooler? Um, and here we are. <laughs> All of those financial advisors and many other of us um, <laughs> of the, of the, of the non-essential workforce um, have found uh, that we've had to figure out what our what what is our productivity and what are our social ties and what is the role of the virtual channel and and mediating this uh, mediating this communication. So so if this is happening, what are your thoughts then as a scientist in terms of in the grand scheme of things, um, what role should companies be taking in terms of data collection now? about their employees' productivity, about their employees' social connection, about their uh, employees, um, you know, this, the, the casual, uh, casual Friday or the, the water cooler. How important is data collection at an individual company level so that as the world continues to evolve and maybe we end up in hybrid models or maybe we end up going back to normal, how important What role should companies be taking in participating and learning from this natural experiment? What steps should they be taking to be strategic yeah. about learning from? Because we'll write our papers. We'll talk about things at a macro level. We'll work with the, in the cool companies that, that are in this game. But what do you think about the ones um, who aren't? Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I mean, that really goes very much at the heart also of this Productivity survey that that uh, we are about to launch, right? Because yes, in an ideal world, I think companies should measure the productivity of their employees all the time and and look at what is the trend 
right? It's, uh, I mean, there are, uh, I, I recently listened to a talk and now I'm blanking on, on the name and, and the, the university. It's also, um, he, so he, he measures basically people's um, positivity um, or, or happiness. I, don't, I didn't want to use happiness, but like, let me see how to explain it. He, he scrapes the conversations on Twitter, I believe, to get a sense of how positive is the sentiment in the population. And he plots that and you can go online and actually see this, yeah, right? And so for a company, having something like this for their productivity is already useful, right? And, and you would see, going back to this idea of a natural experiment, you would probably also see a big difference before versus during, right? But in order to really understand, okay, well, where do these differences coming from? Now you need more data, right? So you have to, I think, as a company, think very carefully, what is important for the productivity of your employees? I mean, you know your industry and how your company works. You know that the best. So you should have a sense or, or, or survey your employees to get a sense what makes them productive? I mean, from the basic research perspective, we, we know it's, all, it's also about, well, how happy am I, am I in my job? How much responsibility do I have? How much, how much control do, do I have, right? I mean, those are the basic things, but I'm also thinking about, I mean, there may be other things that are specific to certain industries. And if you know those, you would want to measure those too to then find out, okay, well, what is the correlation between those different variables at any point in time? So for example, with the productivity also, what I've been thinking, and I think I mentioned that before, I think people's anxiety level plays an important role. So we may find that productivity goes down, but this may not mean that productivity is bad when people are working from home. It's just that under these special circumstances, when your anxiety level is super up, where you're maybe worried about your finances, where you're worried about your health, um, where you have to take care of a child, where you have all these additional issues, you know, productivity goes down. It does, again, it does not mean that working from home is, is not the right direction for the future, right? So, so in order to really be able to make meaningful, uh, to, to come to meaningful conclusions, you have to really think carefully about all the data that you need, because if you only have a limited set of data, you could easily come to the completely wrong conclusions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and another thing that I wanted to mention, uh, especially now when we're thinking of during the pandemic versus now going back to work life. Um, again, you could think of in part, there is this natural experiment here, right? And, there will be a, like, when you just think of, there will be differences in what we are observing when it comes to work and productivity and happiness of workers based on whether everybody is working from home or not everybody is, is working from home. So right now, everybody is working from home. So the expectations from employers or the, the companies are probably the same, more or less, across the board. You also don't have to worry about, um, or don't have to worry too much about uh, differences between employees. But once I, as a company say, you know, those who want, they can choose to come back. Those that want, they can, they can still work from home. Now, I may, as an employee, feel pressured. I have to go back because if I'm staying at home, I'm missing out on those social connections. Um, my work may be viewed as 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 not that effective because um, they may think that I'm I don't know that I may be on Facebook or or doing what kind or, or so. I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a lot of complexity that you would want to capture also now as we transition back if you want to learn something from this natural experiment and. And, and, and I think that this hybrid mode that we will now see in this, in this phase where we're going back is actually much, much more complex than what we have right now during the pandemic. 
Yeah, I think that um, you raised many really important points about um, you know, the, the data gathering, the variables that we're tracking, um, having a hypothesis already about what are the things that impact productivity, such as anxiety, um, understanding how that might change is crucial, um, you know, and identifying those variables. And then long-term thinking about the impact, um, you know, in terms of comparison points and, and benchmarks between, uh, between employees is something that we're going to have to be sensitive to because it looks like we will be in this uh, mandatory, it'll either be mandatory um, per public health, uh, either recommendations or requirements, um, or for the safety of employees um, in terms of individual choice, that we're going to be in a hybrid um, workplace for a, a number of months and maybe even years. And so it's crucial to start to gather the data, identify the variables that we think matter um, to help everyone be as successful as possible. I mean, just as one other example that is very similar, at, as you know, I'm a professor at BU. So we as, as an institution also think about, well, what does teach, what will teaching look like in the fall? Right now, all the classes across the board are on Zoom. There are no in-person classes. In the fall, if things by then have opened up, but we, but we have the social distancing measures in place, we will be able to have some in-person, um, we'll be able to teach to, for some people in person, but others will not be able to be there. So how are you now designing your courses so that it's fair so are you rotating who is in person and 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 how do you make it so that the experience that every student is getting is the same can that even be done and i think that's the same challenge that employers or organizations will be facing so nina that that really lets me segue to some other things that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's around ethics. And you've devoted so much of your energy and career as a behavioral scientist to this very complex topic, philosophical in nature, yet behavioral science has evidence, demonstrates, had a really um, powerful way to help us go beyond the questions that are explored from a philosophical perspective um, to now actually move, in, move into uh, tactics and interventions that, uh, <laughs> tactics and interventions that let us influence uh, that, that ethical behavior. Yep. So um, just to pick up on your last point about, again, things that we're going to need to explore, you talked about the issue of fairness. Mm -hmm. um, so what will be fair for students, what will be fair for employees and um, in, in this uh, new model where we need to work? Um, can, you, can you expand on, on that? Um, because I think one of the things that we're really talking about fairness is underlying that is this expectation around honesty. Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm working from home, is it how will we measure um, you know, my honesty, um, is it assumed that I'm less honest than someone who's going in? We talked about looking at Facebook, for instance, as being the thing that we're paranoid about for the person working from home, but we didn't, we didn't assume that, that that was necessarily as great a risk as the person in the office or the student in the classroom. So it's already a bias that we have for the individual who's not sitting in front of us. So these questions around uh, fairness and biases around, you know, if you're, if you're not visible, you must be cheating. I'd love to, love to hear the kinds of things that you've been thinking about. Yeah, I'm just making notes here. Yeah, I mean, we know from research in, 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 um, in ethics or by ethical decision-making in particular, that the more distant I feel um, from others or from institutions, um, the easier it is for me to give in to the temptation for self-interested dishonesty, right? Um, same as if, 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 if I feel that um, the institute, so if it's, it's easier for me to cheat an institution than it is to cheat another person. So 
the more distant something is either um, physically or or the way how we perceive it, right? The, the easier it is. And I think this is where where part of that 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 fear maybe from some organizations is coming from that if people are now working from home out of sight, that things are different. Um, at the same time, we do know, and, and, and I know that you know our research also quite well, simple interventions, just reminding people of their standards, of their honesty, reminding them of how everybody else is behaving in the right way, especially if these everybody else people are people that I associate with, that that that, that helps. And, and we also know the more trust and responsibility you give to people, um, the more likely they are also to honor that. I mean, can we fully solve either problem? No, but it's also not just a clear black and white and there are interventions there or if you're thinking back back to some of the research I believe by Bates and, and, and colleagues right where people were asked to pay based on an honor system for bagels or for other things if you put up um, um, I think a picture of some of some eyes um, on the wall just where the bagels are people feel more observed they act differently if you put a, a mirror so that they can see actually their actions they, they act differently. So all this research that we have accumulated, and there's so much out there, gives us a good sense of what we can do to reduce people's temptations. Because the good thing at the end of the day is that what we find across the board in most of our studies, most people want to be honest. Most people are good people. So we should, we should as organizations, also not assume always the worst, right? I mean, the opposite. We should actually assume always the best People have the right intentions. And then think about, well, what can we do to help them to stay on that path when, when there may be temptations? But that also requires us to think about, well, what are the situations where we believe the temptations are really meaningful? Because you don't want a state where, where, where we come up with interventions everywhere, right? That, that's going back to individual freedom, right? <laughs> so... So that's really interesting. So if we if we use those insights then around um, providing uh, mechanisms to help reduce the temptation, and we see things like eyes and mirrors, reminders of self 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 reminders of of individual commitment to honesty, reminders of other people's behavior that's that's generally normatively good. Um, what what would be some of the kinds of things that you think might work in the specific work from home context that that are you know reasonable not not like I said impinging on freedom or violating too much into a person's sense of of um personal integrity so what what can we do without going too far well i i i want to challenge you by, by, by asking in return well what do you think are really the big issues that we have to worry about. I mean, ju me just opening up Facebook once in a while and maybe losing half an hour or so, as you point out, that may have happened before in my office as, as well. In, in fact, in my case, you know, when I need a break for me, one way that I love to take a break is to read the news about all kinds of celebrities. Um, and without that, you know, I don't know if I would be that much more productive because we once in a while need a break, right? And everybody has their own way of how they're taking breaks. So I think we're willing to ask, well, what are really the critical issues that we're talking here about? What is the type of dishonesty where, where companies or employers, organizations, what are they concerned with? If it's mm -hmm. just distractions, I don't, I don't know how much we really want to get rid of this because I do think that, that, that they serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. What about uh, shirking then? And not necessarily just um, kind of spending time at a reasonable amount in healthy distractions or other forms of mind wandering, which we know 
from other research, there's a very good link between allowing that mind wandering, whether it's looking at celebrity news or staring out the window, we know that there's a healthy relationship between those forms of distractions and even creativity, anxiety management, um, and a, a number of really positive uh, benefits. And so stepping in too much into, you know, surveillance and prevention of, you know, any, any cognitive downtime is likely to have, you know, very detrimental effects on people and, and you know, the potential goal of productivity or creativity. Um, but what about um, what about the fact that in the work from home environment, we are missing um, the social norms of seeing what time people come into the office, how long they're sitting at their desk, their contribution in person meetings, what time they're leaving. We're missing a lot of the um, visual reminders of everyone else's uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. But then you could maybe think about other ways to incorporate those kind of cues. In particular, when you think, oh, well, what are the type of tools that are out there in the market? So what if, if we have tools like Slack um, or, or a bunch of other tools that are out there like do they have something built in where you can see when somebody is online you can see when somebody is communicating with whom and in particular when you're working on a team so that you can get a sense of those social cues it, it, it will never be perfect right I mean if somebody really intentionally wants to gain the system online or offline in person or on a computer or yeah I mean uh, while being on zoom they can do it right it's it's again thinking about the people who, who are not the bad apples, right? How do you help them? And, and I think there are several tools out there that have these cues, that, that, that haven't necessarily thought about those more heavy-handed ones that we have thought in, in our research, right? But, but just by seeing when, when I am on Slack or, or, or any of, of, of these other tools, just seeing like a green dot like next to your name and you're part of my team, and I see a timestamp when you when you send something, and it did give me a sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's really exciting to think about applying your. What's it been? Probably it's over a decade. Well, over a decade now of exploring these questions about honesty and and applying them to our questions around work from home, the hybrid workplace. And, and those who uh, do, the, do the return to work. So there's many questions to explore, but there's much uh, prior research to, to leverage, as you said earlier. So I wanna thank you very much for your time and for engaging in a philosophical, political, scientific conversation about uh, COVID-19 and what we've learned, the kinds of questions that we have and how we can use research to help make the world a better place. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Kelly. <laughs> Thank you.